0: Truly, if I did not love the word of God, I would sit down. But since I prepared, <laughs> I'm going to teach because that was excellent. The worship, once again, what Shirley said, because believe, people don't believe that today. I guess it's always been people that said, hey, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm better than the next person. And we know as believers, that's not the standard. The standard is a holy God. But chapter 5, verse 1. So it was of Joshua, when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, the Amorites... When we hear of the Amorites and the Canaanites, especially the Canaanites, that's a general term. But the Amorites lived, their stronghold was in the mountains. The Canaanites lived by the Mediterranean Sea. That's where their stronghold was. And he says, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard. That the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over. That their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. News travels fast, but as you know, bad news travels even faster. I want us to just think about the inhabitants of Jericho You look over that 30-foot wall, two walls, inner and outer walls, fortified walls, and you see two to three million people. You've already heard how God had brought them out of Egypt by the way of the Red Sea. He's taken care of them in the wilderness for about 40 years, even Their parents, in their unbelief, he took care of them. They've defeated that tag team of Sihon and Og on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And now they look over the wall and they only have one consolation. This very swollen Jordan River. They thought they had at least... Weeks, if not months, to prepare for the children of Israel. And can you imagine someone overlooking the wall and say, hey, come here and look at this. You won't believe what your eyes is showing you. And from Adam down to the Dead Sea, the waters has piled up like the Hoover Dam without the Hoover Dam. And the next thing they know is that two to three million Israelites are camping out right at their door. That's amazing to me. No wonder their hearts are melting and they have no more spirit left inside of them. This word, this news spreads quickly among the people. And remember why this is going on, because the Lord said, because of the greatness of their sin and wickedness. So they are completely by this time dispirited as they watch the miracle God has performed. And you know, as I look at this passage, it also says this in Deuteronomy and Numbers, speaking of the wickedness of the people in Canaan. And that's why God is now displacing them, removing them. As a little boy, we would run and get the newspaper, and it was a cartoon that we would always read, and it was the family circus. Good jokes. And I'm reminded of the family circus. One day they had depicted this huge city, wall city in the background. And in the foreground, there was two ancient soldiers, officers in front. And they're looking at one another. And then the caption says, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And, you know, that's what many people think of when they think of the conquest of Canaan. How could a loving God, how could a good God destroy millions of people? And so that's the punchline. What would Jesus do? Because we know this God of the Old Testament is angry and he's mad and he's just, uh, he's filled with the holiness and he can't, and he hates sin and there's no love in him, most people think who've never read their Bibles, and that's why they asked, what would Jesus do? But I want you to think back. This was 350 years. God tells Abraham to to cut open a ram and and an ox and, 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 and wait on me because I'm coming to cut covenant with you. And he waits, Abraham waits, and he finally falls asleep. And then when God shows up in a flaming torch and smoke, he says, I want you to know, Abram, that your lineage, your ancestors will be in bondage for 350 years. And he was speaking of the bondage in Egypt because he said the iniquity of the Amorites have not come to fruition yet, has not come to their peak. And what God is saying, I'm going to give the Canaanites time to repent of their sins. I'm going to to give them 350 years. Surely they would repent in that. Well, when the children of Israel comes out of Egypt, they become more perverse. And it was because their sexual perversion and their occultic life that God says it's like an a, a animal that has rabies. The best thing you can do is put that animal down before it infects and spreads to everyone else. God in his long suffering, God in his patience gave them 350 years to turn from their ways, and they never did. And now he's sending the children of Israel, into the land of Canaan. And not that the children of Israel were righteous or holy more than the Canaanites, but God had made a covenant with Abram, and God keeps his word. And so he's using the instrument of the children of Israel to go in and wipe out this Canaanite nation. So God is long-suffering. He is patience, and that's what he does here. But now, God measures time morally. He doesn't look at his watch and say, oh, now it's time. He measures time morally. We can look at Sodom and Gomorrah. We can look at, uh, once again, the Canaanites. And once that time has reached its peak and God says, there's nothing else I can do, I'm going to destroy them. Watch out America. Watch out the entire world. That's his clock. That's what he does. It says in Genesis 15:16 but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet filled. The Bible says in John chapter 3 the wrath of God is like a guillotine over the necks of every in, neck of every individual. And no one knows the day or the hour that that wrath will be filled. God gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent of our sins. But one day, the hammer will come down. And that's what's happening here. You know, if you ask me, after you have brought two to three million people across the Jordan River and you're in the land of Canaan now, You've established a beachhead in the land. Your enemies are melting. Momentum is on your side. Morale is good. You would think they would say, hey, let's go attack right now. But God doesn't work like that. I used to listen to a lot of secular rap. And every secular rapper, and even the non-secular one, they always have somebody called a hype man that would hype the crowd up and get everybody fired up until the rapper comes on stage and begins to do his thing. As I was thinking about that, God does not need a hype man. When the children of Israel is ready to go in, it doesn't matter to God when this happens because God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He knows that the victory is his, so he waits until the perfect opportunity to attack. God is saying, my children, they're not ready to take Jericho yet. And so he gives them three specific things that he wanted to do in them, to prepare their faith and to prepare them spiritually for the conquest of the land. And these are necessary preparations before God would give his people victory over the nations in the land of Canaan. And so this, that's what chapter five is all about. He says in verse two, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now we know that can't happen twice, but we'll find out what he's speaking of here. God doesn't say take, titanium knives. He doesn't say take stainless steel knives. He says make for yourselves flint knives. That's tough. That's going to be a lot of action going on. I don't know how sterile the knives, the flint rock knives were. I think about all these things as I'm reading the scriptures. I'm saying, come on, Lord, what are you doing? But it had to be at least 600,000 males that gets uh, uh, circumcised right in the land of Canaan. Imagine that. It says, so Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins that was named that after the event. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out, this older generation, had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during this 40-year wandering, on the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. I don't know if it was because of just being indifference. Uh, I read a couple of commentaries that said that God was displeased with this older generation because of unbelief. So he said, no, I don't want you to be circumcised. I can't find that in the scripture anyway. I think it was just indifference. They just never made the time to do this. And remember, once again, this generation, they're not going into the land of Canaan because of their unbelief. So it says in verse 6, For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness. Can you imagine that? A death march. I'm sure Joshua, what's the other dude's name that got to go into the promised land? Caleb, thank you. I'm sure they said every day after about six months, oh, man, I'll be glad when all these people die off. I'm ready to go into the land of Canaan. (laughs) But God was patient. He said, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. They perished in the wilderness because they turned away. Remember at Canish Canish Barnea, Kadish Barnea, that's where Moses had sent the twelve spies into the land to spy out the land. Ten come back with a bad report, two comes back with a good report. And since the ten really made the other people of Israel begin to cry and weep at their at the tent door. God says, because of your unbelief, I'm not going to let you inherit the land. So for 38 years, they wander in the wilderness. Numbers 14 tells us God saw that as a breach of promise because they did not believe in his word. So he says at the latter part of verse 6, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. You bet they did. I'm amazed at this strategy right here. I love reading history. I'm a history buff. And I love reading about battles and wars. And I've never read, and I don't think it's ever been a general that enters into a land and says, hey, let's disable our troops for a while. Let's just disable everybody and just to kick back and take it easy for a while. There's no military campaign leader that would do something like this, but God does. God has everything in order the way he wants because he knows once again, they're not ready to enter the land. He basically incapacitates his entire army here. Think back with me in Genesis chapter, I think it was chapter 34, when Uh, uh, Jacob and his children, they go to the land of Shechem. And Dinah, the only girl in the family, she goes out off to meet the neighbors of Shechem. And she runs into this prince and his name was Shechem and Shechem rapes her. He takes advantage of her, but he goes on and rapes her. And the Bible says that even though he did that, he fell in love with Dinah. So he goes, Hamar, Shechem's dad, goes to Jacob and says, hey, Shechem wants to marry your daughter. But then the Bible tells us, Simeon and Levi, they spoke deceitfully and they said, hey, I tell you what, the people in our community, our, our, our lineage, we all, the males are all circumcised. So if you want Dinah so bad, you, you're going to have to tell all your males to be circumcised. Hamor takes the news back, okay, we'll do it, we'll do it. Well, they do, they did do it. And the Holy Spirit says three days later, Levi and Simeon goes into their village and destroys every male in the village. Two men. So that tells us how incapacitated 600 Jews were at the doorstep of the Amorites and the Canaanites, and yet God says, this is what I want you to do. That's a step of faith here. Every male does that. And so they're just waiting on the Lord. No one would imagine that a holy God would say something like this, tell them to do this, but God is looking at something else. God is looking at the covenant, that he had made with Abram. And that covenant, the covenant of circumcision was a promise that not only they would have the land of Canaan, but that God would be their God and God would make a great nation out of Abram. And that would bring them into the promised land. So it was important that this new generation would remember the covenant and the sign of the covenant and become circumcised before They begin any battle. That's what God wants. We know that this covenant of circumcision is a sign of ownership. God is saying, I want you guys to understand you belong to me. A physical sign that the children of Israel belong to God. It reminded them of this regularly, that they weren't like everybody else in the world. They had a covenant relationship with Yahweh. It also represented spiritually the cutting away of the flesh. Hmm. The cutting away of the flesh. This mark symbolizes that they were to be a people who is not ruled by the flesh, but ruled by the Holy Spirit. So circumcision was to be an outward symbol of their heart. And we know the great mistake that the Jews made, they thought just because they were circumcised that they were okay with God. John the Baptist spoke to them about that. And it even speaks about that in the New Testament because I mean in the Old Testament because Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 tells us, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29 says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. And since circumcision was given as a sign of God's faithfulness to keep his promise that they would one day enter into the promised land, it would have sent mixed messages if God would allow them to go into the promised land and begin to battle and begin to have victories and they have not been into this covenant relationship. That would almost be like, I'm doing this in the flesh, and I'm not doing it by the spirit. And we know we cannot win any battle by walking in the flesh. So God says, before the battle starts, before the struggle starts to take Canaan, we need to get our relationship right with him. We need to understand that we are a covenant people. And it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If we're going to have any victory in the Lord, it's going to be by his spirit. And God is wanting them to see that and understand that. In the same way today, we have a covenant, an agreement, a contract with the living God that's based upon what? The blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not based upon circumcision or anything else. So our covenant with God is represented once again by a circumcised heart. It's represented by desiring. Do you desire to live a holy life, a life of obedience to the Lord rather than living for the flesh? That's the question. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, listen clearly, in him, that's Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Has he did that work in our lives? That's what he says here. So, as believers, we have a greater seal, a greater evidence that we are owned by God, that we are in right relationship with God. We have the person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And he has and he will continue to provide for us the power that we need to will and to do. If I'm willing to do it, it's not because uh, I'm, I'm doing it. The Lord has put that in me. I belong to him now. I shall live a holy life, and he gives me the power to will and to do of his good pleasure. A quick sidebar. I said I was going to say this before I came up here, but you know me, I forgot. But I'm going to say it now. A few of us, we're going on this pastor's conference three or four days, uh, and so I won't be teaching and and But who will be teaching Wednesday is Alex. Alex will be teaching. He'll be teaching in the overflow. I wish you guys would do me a great favor because it won't be online. Jordan, he'll be gone. If you can, please come out and, and encourage Alex and Brenda. I know he studied, and it would be a blessing to us. He'll probably get on to me for saying this, but I can handle it. So please, if you can, come out and, and, and just share the word with them, okay? Back to the Scriptures. <laughs> Once again, circumcision is more than a sign of the flesh. That was the Jews' problem. God said it was a sign, Victor, and listen to this, of the attitude of the heart. You know, you can do things but you have an attitude when you're doing it. And really, the Bible says that's only wood, hay, and stubble if you have the attitude when you're doing it. It's going to be burned up. You might as well not do it. So it's about the attitude. And once again, it's a cutting away of being stiff-necked. They were rebellious against God, this new generation. I mean, this older generation. So it's a cutting away of the things of the carnal nature for us, so that there would be a true love for God. Jesus says, if you love me, first he says, my commandments are not burdensome, Victor. Oh, I got to do this, Lord, but I'd want to do something else. He says, no, 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 my commands are not burdensome. Then he says, if you love me, you will keep them and you won't have a problem keeping them. So they're, remember, they're, they're at Gilgog. And so Gilgog becomes a place of consecration. They will go back to Gilgog every time they go around Jericho. And before God allows them to go into battle, and they are right once again in the place, in the face of their enemy, before they enter into any struggle, as it were, God says the first thing that must happen is consecration to be set apart for his use. And the picture for you and I is in the days that we are living in. And as we strive for his promises to possess our land in a culture that desperately is dependent on us, whether they know it or not, We have what they need, the unbeliever, and that's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be on fire for the Lord. The message that we have will change their lives. We have the good news. But again, God says, before you can enter into any of these promises, he says, our own lives need to be consecrated. Our own lives need to be set apart. There's needs, there, there, there needs to be a cutting away of carnality from our own lives before we can ever be effective in the lives of others. We can tell them all day long, hey, Jesus loves you. He has the power to deliver you from hell. He has the power to deliver you from death. He has the power to deliver you from pornography or or, or depression or drugs or spousal abuse or any of those things. The Lord has the power to deliver you. And yet I walk around in bondage to my sin. That gives out the wrong message. That's what He's speaking of here. God will not use an unconsecrated vessel to reach an unconsecrated world. No, no, no. He he does not do that. God uses consecrated vessels, not perfect vessels, but lives that are set apart. Those are the lives he used for an unconsecrated world. That's what he's telling the children of Israel right here. You guys aren't ready to go in. You're behaving. Your heart is just like their hearts. You're not even in covenant relationship with me. So I want you to get back in covenant relationship with me. And then you will be effective. That's what he means. That's what he says here. And so he challenges them here. He says in verse 8, so it was. When they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day, notice what he says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What does he mean by that? Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgog to this day. He says, I'm rolling away the reproach. Hear me well. The reproach was not that these slaves have come out of bondage because God is a God of slaves. He he doesn't have a problem with that. He can clean anybody up. The problem is the reproach was, remember, the first time God says, hey, leave me alone, Moses. I'm going to destroy the people, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Moses says, no, Lord, don't do that. Remember why? Because he says, then the people will say that you could not bring them into the promised land. (laughs) He says, we have a problem if you do this, Lord. The Lord knew anyway. That's why he picked Moses. That's what he's saying. The reproach is finally rolled off of you because where are they now? They're in Canaan. They are in the promised land. He says, the reproach is rolled away. That's like, Me, and I've told you about me, and my mom said, well, I believe the reproach is still on you. I'm going to have to wait and see if the reproach is still off of you. I said, okay, you do what you got to do. Five years, 10 years, 12 years. She should have had more faith in the Lord. The reproach is not on you any longer. That's why it's so important for believers to live set apart, consecrated lives. Because like David says, if we don't and we say we are Christians and we live like the world, we give the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme his name by our lifestyle. That's why it's so important that we live set apart lives. God says, now the reproach is off of you. When we surrender to the Lord like this, you guys, when we truly surrender our will to him like this, it makes us vulnerable, and we don't like to be vulnerable. But have you ever noticed there's a lot of commands in the Scripture God gives that, re- that requires us to put off the old man and put on the new man? And we need to look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, Go with them, too. But we will say, God, if I obey you, if I obey you in this situation, you're going going to leave me vulnerable. I will be as vulnerable as the children of Israel sitting at the doorstep in Canaan. And I don't like feeling that way, Lord. God says, I've seen this movie, too. I've been through this before. Listen up. I know how to take care of my children in these situations. He's a God who loves us. He's a God that he cares for us. He tells us to ask for forgiveness when we have offended someone. We have to make ourselves vulnerable to do that. Lord, they will make me grovel. They will make me just bow down to them if I ask them, that I was wrong and ask for forgiveness. He tells us sometimes to let that offense go and also that attitude. The first thing we might say, they started it, Lord. And that comes back to pride. And that's the rub right there. I don't know about you, but I like the part of the scripture when David is writing his Psalms and David says, Lord, break their teeth. But Jesus says, no, I want you like me. I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to turn the other cheek. And he knows how to protect his children when we do that. When you, when you and I were made vulnerable as a result of obeying the word of God, God will never allow the devil to take advantage of us. We don't have to worry about the devil taking advantage of us. We don't have to worry about that person taking advantage of us because we're obeying the Lord and he will protect us. He knows how to protect us when we obey him. Matter of fact, our protection is in the obedience. It's only when we're not obeying the Lord, we need to look around and watch out for everything. But when we're walking in obedience with the Lord, He's going to protect us. Therefore, we can walk in confidence. So there they are circumcised. And it says in the latter part of verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Numbers 14, 16 says this, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. So once again, the reproach was he wasn't going to be able to put them in the land, but now they're there. And then it says in verse 10, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgog and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. This is the third time they have kept Passover. They kept Passover first when they were brought forth out of Egypt. They also kept Passover in Numbers chapter 9. When God gives his 10 commandments, he makes them take Passover again, keep Passover then. And for 40 years, they never took it. And God is saying, okay, now that you're back in covenant with me, remember where they are at. They are in the land of Canaan. They're right at the doorsteps of Jericho. They could have attacked them at any time. God says, now after you're back in covenant with me, let's have a feast because that's what Passover was. It was a feast. And I'm sure they're scratching their heads saying, okay, Lord, we, we circumcised everybody like you said. We're ready to go to battle before they attack us. God says, don't worry about it. Let's have a feast. That's the way God operates. I want you to see this. While we are worried about this might happen and that might happen, God is saying, allow me to take care of you. Jesus said it the same way, be anxious for nothing. Look at the sparrows. The Lord takes care of them. How much more will he not take care of us? What God is saying here, just be in covenant relationship with me. And you don't have to worry about all the other things. This is a great feat that is about to take place. And God is saying, I want you to remember all the way back to that first Passover. You see, God has no problem in delivering us. God has no problem in keeping us. He says, if I can do the bigger thing which is giving you salvation, which is bringing you out of Egypt by these 10 plagues, if I can do the bigger thing, how much more will I not do the lesser thing? That's what Paul says in Romans Romans 8. How much more? I've given you my son, how much more will I not give you all things? Will I not give you the land? This right here is the land. I must learn to possess it. I must learn to keep it. I must learn to put it to death day in and day out. That's what he's saying here. So he's saying, how much more if I do that? So it says, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgog and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month At twilight, 40 years, God brings them into the land of Canaan on the same day He delivered them out of Egypt. He's a meticulous bookkeeper. He's never out of control. He's always, He has us on His heart, He has us on His mind. He says, The month at twilight on the plains of Jericho, right in the enemy's territory they're feasting and having a great time. Look in chapter 6 at verse 9 real quick. I'll read a little of that. Chapter 6, verse 9. It says, the armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets. I want you to see that. So even the armed men, as they come in, they're ready for war. They're ready for bear. They're loaded for bear, and they're loaded for giants. And God says, put all your weapons down. I want you circumcised. I want you to come back to the covenant, and I want you to remember the Passover. I want you to feast with me because I'm not going to have any problem in delivering you if you're in a right relationship with me. If you're in a right relationship with me, I will prepare a table for you in the midst of your enemies if you're in a right relationship with me. And that's the key. If you're walking with me, if you're obeying me, and God will do it. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Everything is a smaller thing compared to our salvation. And so right there, they partake of Passover. Verse 11 tells us, And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. Now watch this chronologically. They ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. So the manna keeps Sabbath, as it were. This is the last Passover as they're eating. The day after Passover, remember, is unleavened bread. The priest would take that sheaf into the holy place, and he would wave it in front of the curtain, and that was the sheaf of first fruits. And what is first fruit for the believer today? That's resurrection day. God has all of this marked out. This is resurrection day. They go from Passover, they eat manna on the Passover. The day, the next day, they eat of the fruit of the land. No more manna. Jesus says the same thing. He says in John chapter 6, verse 48 through 50, no need of eating any more manna because they are in the land of Canaan. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So they're in this new relationship with the Lord. They're, they're getting to the eat of the fruit of the land. Abraham had eaten in this land. Joshua had partaken of this land. Isaac had partaken of this land. And for 350 years, here comes the children of Israel. God is faithful. God will keep his promises. We just need to not go by things that are seen, but things that are unseen, and walk with him. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All of them. So they partake of the land right here. Verse 13 tells us, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. Now watch this. He's alone. The river's been crossed by this time. The land has been entered into like God has said. They have come back into covenant relationship. They have partaken of the Passover. Oh, everything is lovely but not for Joshua. That's the way we are. Joshua, during all this, he begins to think, okay, Lord, I've appreciated the Passover. I've enjoyed all of this. But yet and still, you haven't told me how we're going to defeat Jericho in these walls. You see, Joshua could not He couldn't really enjoy what the Lord was doing because he was still worried about Jericho. We shouldn't live our lives like that. What if this happens, Lord? What if that happens? And you don't get to enjoy the relationship with Jesus Christ. It was okay. God was going to bring them through. That's why Joshua is by himself, and he's meditating, and he's walking, and he's saying, Lord, I've enjoyed this, but you still haven't spoken to me about how we're going to defeat the enemy here. He doesn't change. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And then it says that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, <coughs> behold! consider this, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. This shows the courage of Joshua because I would have fled and went the other way. And Joshua went to him and said to him, "Are you for us or for our adversary?" He basically said, "Are you a friend or are you a foe? I need to no. know." So he said, "No." Now notice he doesn't answer this question yes or no. God is God and he can answer any way he wants to, and that's what he's showing Joshua right here. You don't come demanding any answers from me. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? I want you to know the issue here was not whether the captain would fight on Israel's side or Jericho's side, but whose side? The Lord is wanting to know whose side are you on. It's not about Lord, do this for me, do that for me. I'm on this side, being partisan on this or that. God is saying, are you on my side? That's what he tells Joshua. That's what he's wanting Joshua to understand. Are you for me? Are you in my camp? I have a total different heart set than you do, Joshua, here. And that's when he identifies himself. He says, but as commander, that word commander could be captain. The King James says captain. It also means prince, and I like that. But as prince of the army of the Lord, I have now come. The angelic host, I'm over all of that. How do you think the walls of Jericho, do you think the walls of Jericho fell down because they blew the trumpets, the ram's horn? No, no. They had angels there, maybe just one angel, and he just lays up against that wall, and it comes down. Pastor Jonathan will talk about that next week. But he's wanting them to understand when he sees this man, this is a pre-incarnate picture, I believe, of Jesus Christ. You can say it's a theophany or a Christophany before he became the babe of Bethlehem. He shows up. He shows up with Abraham when those three men comes to Abraham's door. He shows up with Joshua at the Jabbok, a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ. We have to understand that Jesus was a spirit just like the Father and the Holy Spirit. And I'm amazed he will never be that again. He will be the only one in the kingdom in heaven with the marks of slaughter on his body, reminding us the price it took for Hank to be there worshiping him. <laughs> you didn't make it on your own. You didn't get here by being good. You got here by grace. And we, every time we look at him, we will see that. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? That gives it away right there. He bows down and he worships. That's what uh, Joshua does. Saha is the word worship. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's what worship is, to bow down my will to your will. I don't have to sing a song. I don't have to play an instrument. I can worship every day because every time I want to go left, and the Lord said, no, P.V., you need to go right. If I turn and go right, I have just worshiped. And that's what he's telling them right here. Remember when John, the angel was revealing to John the, uh, the scenes that were going on in heaven and John, John gets so carried away, he bows down and begins to worship the angel. The angel quickly said, don't, don't worship me. He says this in Revelation 19, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, he says, worship God. So that's who this person is. Verse 15, then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Where was he standing? He was standing in a defiled land of Canaan. And he says, this place is holy. And I'm reminded no matter if we go to public school, uh, uh, a Christian school, no matter where we work, whatever we do, it might be a defiled place, the community, the neighborhood, the mall, wherever, but we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, so we are holy. These vessels are holy, and we need to remember that, that the Lord has made us holy, and we should live a distinct, certain way because we are holy. And to remember that, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the beginning of verse 16, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are holy. Do you want to possess this land this morning? Do you want to know how to possess your vessel? We need to live consecrated lives. Do we truly want to enter into all of the promises, the fullness of God in these bodies? We need to live consecrated lives. There's no shortcut. There's no getting around that. There's no secret ingredient to do. We surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And God is saying this to Joshua. They're back in covenant. They're back. They they, they did the Passover. So they are back in right relationship with the Lord, almost about to close. Now that everything is settled, now that they are properly situated, Chapter, one, chapter 6 of verse 1 says now. That's why that now is there for. Everything is right. The relationship is right. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in saying, this is, a, this is an impossible feat. But now everything is ready. And the Holy Spirit is wanting us to know. It's no way the children of Israel is going to win this without the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given you Jericho into your hand. It's king and it's mighty men of valor. This is called a prophetic past tense. It's going to happen. I'm bringing it to pass. That's why it says that. Then he says, verse three, you shall march. Now, Joshua finally gets what he's been wanting to get, how this is going to happen. Because remember, This man he's speaking to is the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ. He showed up and he's saying, okay, this is what I want you to do. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him that's a odd that's very odd that's as odd as turning the other cheek and the worship team can come up what god has just said This is the battle plan. This is what what I want you to do. That's as odd as rendering, not rendering evil for evil or insult for insult. But guess what? It's going to be done. It's going to happen. But they had to get everything in order first. Is your life in order with the Lord now? Are there some strongholds? some bondage that you can't be set free of. The only reason it is, is because we're not wholly consecrated to the Lord. That's what scripture says, and that's why I have to ride with scripture. I have a nephew who's bipolar. Bipolar. Good guy, but he's in and out, in and out of jail. And he's in and out of jail because of his bipolar, because he'll go into the store and just do something stupid. And he'll say, why would you do that? But we found out he's bipolar. And if you know anything about that, he has medication that he can get on, and it helps him a lot. But for some reason, he just, I don't like the way it makes me feel. And as I was thinking about this, Jesus Christ has set people free from being bipolar and being depressed and all those other things, but we have to give it to them. Whether it's from medication that you have to take, if you want to live a pretty good life and do the right things, grin and bear it. God's grace is sufficient. That's what I'm trying to get across to you, God. There's nothing that the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ is not able to deliver us from. And the reason we walk around depressed and um, I, I feel defeated and I just can't get over this, try consecration. Try consecration. Try given your lives to the Lord fully. Jesus does not lie. He cannot lie. And when he says he will give us the land and that he will give us every victory, he will. But we have to put all our trust on him and do the things he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, Lord, sometimes we can know in our minds Joshua knew that they were going to take the land, but it wasn't until you spoke to him that he felt better. Well, Lord, you've spoken to us in your word. You have given us great and precious promises. You have said you would never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, I pray, no matter what we may be struggling with, whether it's marriages, whatever it is, Lord, whether it's sons or daughters not knowing Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, or friends, parents that don't know Jesus Christ, Lord, you are working. May we live consecrated lives. May we stand in the gap for others. May we continue to seek and knock and ask until we see changed lives. Lord, all we have to do is live for you die to self, pick up our cross, and follow you daily. And we will begin to see situations change, I believe, with all my heart. But Lord, you're not going to use unconsecrated vessels for unconsecrated, to change unconsecrated lives. You want to use holy vessels. Vessels that are clean and have a full heart for you that you might move mightily so that your son, Jesus Christ, will receive glory. Father, I pray for everyone here that we would fall in love with you more and more each and every day, that we would cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us, and you will show yourself strong in our lives. May we believe that with all of our hearts. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God, Amen.